It is not a race, but bonus points are awarded. <clears throat> Good morning. Or uh, afternoon, depending on if you changed your clock or not. You guys know that your clock changed, right? I know. Very few of us have real clocks anymore. Your cell phone changed, you may not have noticed. I kind of forgot until my microwave gave me a panic attack. Thinking service had already started this morning. So, this morning we're going to be getting into the parable of the rich fool. It's going to be in your Bibles in Luke chapter 11, or 12, Luke chapter 12. And we're continuing... Uh, with our series on the parables, the stories with intent, which is how we're defining parables, not just that, but uh, no less than that. And uh, I came across a new, uh, ad- uh, what's the great, what's the word for it? New innovation this week. Uh, how many of you order things from Amazon on a regular basis? How many of you are Prime members? Okay. How many of you have had this happen where you order something and, you know, they send you like, it's like you feel like you're in charge of the world, right? Because they send you, they're like, we got your order. They send you a text. They're like, just want you to know, we'll put your order in a box. And then they're like, okay, we gave that box to the postal service. It's on its way to you. And then when it's out for delivery, they send you another one that says, hey, it's out for delivery. It'll be there by 8 p.m. And it's like, okay, I feel, I feel in control. I know where my stuff is. I know when I get it. And now it's gone to the next level where I got a text that said, your package is out for delivery. To track it, click this link. And I was like, well, it's out for delivery. What more tracking is there? But they have their own fleet now of essentially like Uber cards where they just pay random drivers and you pick up a bunch of packages and you drop them off. And you can track where that driver is. And you can see how many stops stand between you and your package. And so it told me there are eight stops left, and I was like, wow, this seems like a great way for me to waste an hour. I can watch him, I can criticize his route, and he did, you know, he came up uh, Gray Road here, and then he turned on Hamilton and went past Landfair, where I live, to get to Cedar, and I was like, come on, man, like, your route should have been, I should have been three stops away, and this is what's wrong with this this innovation, Because, just keep your eyes on the news, I'm sure within a few weeks, you will have people following their drivers around, asking for their package a few minutes earlier, because I know where the driver is. But this is, our obsession with stuff and things has created demand for minute-to-minute tracking of when we will get more stuff and things. That's how much we love stuff and things. This company thought it is worth our money. Our customers will be this much happier if they can literally see an emblem on a map showing them where the driver is bringing their stuff to them. And this is like what I wanted on Christmas Eve as a kid, like a Santa tracking app. But they didn't have it then, and now I get it year-round. So Christmas has come early. But the idea here is this is... Uh, this is what we're going to talk about this morning is we're talking about the rich fool, but the word used in the parable is wealth and wealth. The Greek word that it comes from doesn't just mean money it means stuff, possessions, material. In fact, anytime I say wealth, you can substitute in materialism. So 
you may not have a lot of money in your bank account right now, but if you have a house full of stuff or a bag full of stuff somewhere, you have many material possessions. And as I was looking into this, I had this, uh, this hunch that the internet helped me verify. There is a, uh, an article about, uh, this very topic from Mike.com. And it's written by a guy named Zishan Alim. And he opens with this sentence. He says, everybody wants to be rich, but nobody wants to admit to being rich. Everybody wants to be rich and nobody wants to admit to being rich. And I suspected that was true. And I thought, I wonder if I can find any more data to back that up. And I did. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sharing it this far into the sermon. But they, uh, they looked at, they interviewed investors with one to five million dollars in assets. One to five million dollars in assets. And they asked them, are you wealthy? And only 28% of them thought they were wealthy. People with one to five million dollars in investments, only 28% of them think that they are wealthy. In fact, uh, now, I don't want you to... So here's the tendency. Nobody wants to admit that they're rich. So I think everybody in this room, unless you d- strongly disagree with me, can say one to five million dollars puts you in the wealthy category. Does anybody want to contest that and say that's not wealthy? Okay, good. What's that? Well, that's true, but that's last week's sermon is who you compare yourself to. Um, so thank you, Barry, for that link. See how it all just ties together? But I looked at this. Now, this one is going to hit close to home. So I looked up Cincinnati minimum wage, for those of you who don't know, is $8.30 an hour. If you multiply that by 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, if you work minimum wage in Cincinnati full-time, that results in $17,264 a year. Now, most of us would say that's not a lot of money. But I have this other website up my sleeve called globalrichlist.com. And you enter your salary and it compares it to what everyone in the world makes. If you are a minimum wage full-time employee in the city of Cincinnati in 2018, you make $17,264 a year. That puts you in the top 5.42% of earners in the world. Now, that's... Yeah, it's real quiet now. <laughs> so everybody's in the top 5% of the world rich list. Now, that doesn't adjust cost of living. You know, it's more expensive to live in Cincinnati than other places in the world. But the idea is you are still receiving a lot of stuff. And so we're going to talk about whatever you're receiving, however much you're receiving, uh, what your heart does with that. And so, and consider this, even if you don't consider yourself to be rich, you get treated like you're rich every day by advertisers. In fact, it is up exponentially from where it was 10 years ago. Uh, it, in the, I believe it was in the 70s, people were exposed to about 250 ads per day. And the latest data in 2018, we are exposed to 5,000 ads per day. 5,000 ads per day. And so that's gone up quite a bit. Um, TV shows have gone from an average of six minutes of commercials to nine minutes of commercials per show. 
Uh, we see advertisements on billboards when you drive, websites, apps, magazines, even a park bench as you're waiting for the bus. The bench advertises to you. We squeeze advertising into and out of everything. And all of them say, you have money, you need stuff. We have stuff, give us your money. You'll have more stuff, we'll have more money. Everybody, ha- Everybody's happy, everybody wins. And so this idea that you just have this constant flow of money. If you gave $1 to every ad you saw every day, you'd be broke by the end of the week. Or at least I would be. I might not even make it till noon, depends on the time of year. But... uh that's uh, that's what we're getting at here. And why am I telling you all this? The reason I'm telling you this is because when we talk about being wealthy, when we talk about the rich fool in the parable, everybody wants to say, that's not me. I'm not rich. That's about those people. And now I can listen to this sermon and just keep this as ammunition for the next rich person I talk to. And the problem is when you talk to a rich person, a $5 million asset holder there's uh, a tw- only a 72%, there's a 72% chance he will not consider himself to be wealthy. And so we need to adjust our definition in order to see how this applies to us. And so at this point, we are going to open Luke's gospel to chapter 12 and read together, uh, starting in verse 13. And I will read it to you. It's on the screens, or you can follow along in your pew Bible. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for uh, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, his ministry on earth, his sacrificial and atoning death for us. And we thank you for uh, the gift of your Holy Spirit and the scripture that he has provided. We ask now that that same Holy Spirit would uh, lead us and guide us in understanding and applying your word to our hearts. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, what we're getting at today, big idea, if you only get one thing, it's this, is that the identity or focus of life, your identity or your focus of life, however you want to say it, is misplaced when you act as though wealth is life. When you act as though possessions are life. Now, I didn't say when you think possessions are life, when you think that wealth is life, because most of us will not admit to thinking a certain way, especially when I'm sitting up here telling you that that way of thinking is wrong. But I'm talking about how you act. And if you want to know how you act towards wealth, I might recommend consulting your bank statement. Um, So Jesus said, you know, out of the mouth, the heart speaketh, saying, you know, out of your heart, you know, from your words, you can tell what's in your heart. I would also tell you from the bank statement, 
the heart speaketh. If you want to see what your idols are, you can follow your money, especially in America. So your focus is misplaced if that's where your focus is. And so as we move in, I'm going to talk about this passage in a little more detail. And now let's see if you can remember the word. It starts with a C. What are we going to look at? Context. Thank you. Ten points. Um, so the context here is we want to remember, first of all, we're in Luke's gospel. Now, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So when you read Luke and Acts, you're reading the work of Luke. And almost every chapter in Luke and Acts has a reference to money or material resource. Almost every single one. It's kind of something, a theme he always is able to recognize and draw out in any given passage. But in chapter 12 specifically, it's arranged to deal with three issues. Fear, anxiety, and security. That's what we're dealing with in Luke chapter 12. If you don't believe me, take your pen and circle every time you see the word fear or anxiety in chapter 12. And you'll see that in verse 4 it says who you should fear. In verse 5 it says whom not to fear. In verse 6 it says don't fear. Basically because God is God. Uh, but then in verse 23 it says, don't be anxious. Life is more than food. The body more than clothes. In verse 32 it says, fear not. Have I demonstrated that the theme here is fear and anxiety? Do I need to keep going? Okay, good. You would have been here a long time. Just saved yourself like 10 minutes. You don't even know. So, we're going to look at this parable again. In the parable, I read from verses 13 to 21. The parable is actually only 16 to 20. And when you look at just the parable, that it says Jesus told them a parable saying, begin quote, all the way to the end quote. That passage, and, and the numbers are still pretty good in English, but not quite as good. In Greek, that whole passage is 51 words. And of those 51 words, 17 of them are first person personal pronouns. There's something odd about that. Let me read it to you and you, if you, even if you are like, you know, it's been a while since high school English, I don't remember what a first person personal pronoun is. I'm going to read you the parable again with an emphasis on first person personal pronouns and you tell me if you recognize it. The land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You see the emphasis here. Now what's that getting to? We'll get there in a second. So there are three unique things about this parable. First, it's the only parable with a monologue in it. The only person, there's a speaker, but the only person he's addressing is himself. So apparently the only person worthy of his own company and the only person whose counsel he's seeking is himself. So it's the only one with a monologue. Secondly, is the only uh, parable where uh, God is a character in the parable. It's not someone standing in the place of God. It's actually God entering the parable. That doesn't happen in other parables. Usually, you know, God is a loving father or he's a shepherd or something. But this one, God is just God. And so that's a unique one. And then that's two unique things. The third one will come to me. I didn't write them down. Um, it'll come up. We're going to read the text together. But this is uh, the interesting thing is that Jesus here is not using the rich farmer as a lens 
to talk about another subject, he's using the rich, the rich man as an example of a man who foolishly trusts in his possessions and someone who misses life by presuming that possessions are life. And so as we look at the passage here, verse 16, the very first verse of the parable, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Question, what did the rich man do? Nothing. He didn't do anything. His land produced plentifully. He is not even responsible for his own wealth. The land did this for him. So he's emphasizing here a couple things, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The other thing you should notice is that the rich man doesn't have a name. And if you read Luke's gospel, you'll notice that happens a lot. Now, in the ancient world, in fact, in the modern world, most of the time when you hear a rich man, you usually associate rich meaning important, right? There's inherent value ascribed to someone who has money. And people who have value in ancient narratives and in modern ones have proper names. You know, he didn't say Bill went out, you know, and his land produced plentifully, but he says a rich man. And so Luke is rejecting that. Luke's saying, nope, having money doesn't make you important. That that alone doesn't make you important. And so you'll see that as a consistent theme. In fact, there's another parable about money called a rich man and Lazarus. And if anybody knows about that parable, there's a rich man who is Lazarus. He's a poor beggar who sits outside the rich man's house. But in the parable, Lazarus gets a name and the rich man is just the rich man. And see, that's consistent throughout Luke's gospel and in Acts that money doesn't inherently give you value. Now, that's that right there, I could stop right there, right? That'd be a good sermon in America in the 21st century, right? That having money doesn't make you a more important person than someone without money, but we're going to keep going because that's just the first verse. And so in verse 17, you see that he thought to himself, and there's no interaction with other people. In fact, the thought of interacting with other people doesn't even seem to occur to him. He just gets this good fortune, and he thinks, what will I do, and what I'll do is this. And he lays out this plan to provide a safe future for himself with abundant wealth, more than he could possibly need or use or even sell. And so he's just got all this. He's going to build bigger barns. And then in verse 20, this is the only parable where God appears as a character. God shows up and says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And in verse 21, it continues with his summary. And he says, so is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. And so one thing you might say in verse 21 is that the wealth we build is nothing compared to the only true source of wealth. But we're going on even further. So there are four things that I think we can take from this parable, and they're all related, but I'm just going to break them up this way. The first is this. The the, uh, uncertainty and fragility of life. Um, in verse 20, it says, this very night, the same day that he receives this good fortune, decides what he's going to do with his good fortune, uh, he's going to have a comfortable life for many, many years to come, and it's like, nope, that's all you got. This night your soul's required of you. And so it's saying, no matter what our careful planning or comfortable provisions are, they do not insulate us from sudden change or tragedy. Now that's not fair. Remember what we talked about fairness last week? It's not fair, but it is reality. 
that wealth can create this illusion of control. If I have stuff, if I invest in the right stuff, then life can't touch me. But that's not true. That, uh, you know, we'll see that time and time again, both in the Bible and in life. The second thing is this, the emphasis on how little control we have over life and or wealth. Now, that might sound uh, offensive to some American ears, uh, including mine, but verse 16 makes it very clear that the land prospers, not his work with the land. He didn't invent some new farming system that yielded a higher crop and got him more value. It just happened. The land prospers, not his work. It emphasizes how little impact the rich man had in producing and acquiring his own wealth. Now, oftentimes, wealth in our society is a result of a few different things. Family of origin. You come from a wealthy family. You can uh, Country of origin. You can be born in a country that is better off than other countries. Uh, the time of birth. If you were born during the Great Depression, your chances of being wealthy were lower than other times. Um, and none of these things are in our control. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, September 21st, 1985, and I didn't have any input in that decision. <laughs> I know. But there were other people born September 21st, 1985, not in Cincinnati, Ohio, who, depending on where they were born, have more or less access to wealth than I do. And they didn't have any say in that either. And so we don't, the biggest factors that influence wealth or our ability to access wealth are not within our control. And so even when we acquire wealth, we realize that it's a gift from God because we did not do anything uh, to get that. And so even those who are wealthy do not get to take all the credit for their wealth. And if you don't get to take all the credit for your wealth, that should start to indicate what the responsibility is going to be with that wealth. The third thing is this, and this is um, something that uh, if I preach long enough and frequently enough, you're going to get really tired of me saying it. But this is one of the things that I return to in almost every passage of Scripture is being a self-oriented life versus an others-oriented lifestyle. And this passage is clearly a condemnation on the self-oriented life. And so the question is, the rich man thought that his responsibilities end with his own economic security. He thought, I got all this wealth, so now I've provided for myself, for my future, my comfort, my food and drink and happiness and my pleasure and my security, and now I'm done. That's the end of my day. And that's not what the parable teaches in fact, he's considered a fool for this line of thinking. And so the question for us then is, do we think the same way as the rich fool? Do we think that our own economic security, our own economic ends, are the end of our responsibility as people and as Christians? And there's a simple test for this. Uh, when you are given money, where does your mind go? Does your mind think of others' needs uh, and in fact, it might be easy to tell yourself while sitting in church that it does, right? Because that's clearly the right answer here. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be others oriented. But if you follow your money, what does it tell you? And no, I intentionally didn't look up and wouldn't even know how. Um, 
uh, the, I didn't look up the giving of our church, but this is of the U.S. Christians in general. Only 5% of U.S. Christians are tithing. It is rough. In fact, in the, in the U.S., the average Christian is giving 2.5% of their money either to church or charitable causes. Now you might say, okay, well, 2.5%, but you know, it's hard economic times. You know, my job doesn't, I haven't had a raise in a few years. But during the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. And so your circumstances do not dictate your generosity. You're either generous or you aren't. You are generous when you have money or you're generous when you don't have money. Those are your options. And so many of us say, well, if I had a bunch of money, I would be so magnanimous and so generous. I would give it all away. But if someone were to give you $20 right now, you found it on Hamilton Avenue when you walk out of here, would you spend it on yourself or on someone else? Or would you split it between yourself and someone else? And if that's how you act with $20, is there any reason to believe you would act differently if you were given $20 million? Now, does that sound familiar? Does it sound like Jesus teaching in another spot? If he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much, and he who is not faithful with little will not be faithful with much. And so we don't judge generosity by the dollar amount given, but by the, the heart from which it comes and the consistency with which it's given. In fact, uh, there's a man in my church from uh, St. Louis where I worked, uh, a few years ago, and his man's name was Peter, and our church um, was kind of unofficially the church for first-generation Kenyan immigrants. And so we had a lot of people immigrating from Kenya. Most of them were Anglican in Kenya, and they were coming to our Anglican church in St. Louis. And this guy, Peter, he and his wife pastored a church in Kenya, came over to the States, and he worked two full-time jobs, 40 hours a week. So he's working 80 hours a week at minimum wage. Now, when I tell you that story, right, you expect the sob story to be complete, right? You're going to feel bad for him. But every time he said that, he was smiling ear to ear because he was like, can you believe that I just I just show up and do work and then they just pay me all this money? And uh, we were like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> like We believe that. Like, that's normal here. But he was so... Un- unaccustomed to that. And he said, but you know, by the age of 30, he'd never owned a pair of shoes. And now he has three pairs of shoes and, uh, was just blown away by this. But here's the interesting thing. I went over to his house for lunch one time. And by the way, that was four hour commitment. I did not realize, but they brought a few things with them. So now I know, uh, if I get invited to a Kenyan authentic Kenyan lunch, that's my afternoon. That's what I'm doing today. Um, and it was amazing food, by the way. But I came over and his neighbors all, you know, just come in and out the back door, grab food as they're coming by. And I was talking to a few of them and at least three of them had cars purchased for them by Peter because he found out about Craigslist and he thought, wow, you can buy a car for like $500 or $1,000. I know a neighbor who needs a car. I'm going to go buy him a car. And he just kept buying cars every time he found a cheap car. And I just couldn't believe this. And then I found out that one of his full-time jobs, 40-hour week, that whole income went to his family in Kenya. So he was living on 50% of that, tithing to the church, buying cars for his neighbors, and feeding everyone in the community. And I was like, man, this is some intense giving. 
And this is intense, this is fierce generosity that can only come from the level of gratitude that he experienced. Now, when most of us talk about how much money we make or how much money is in our bank account, we do not do it smiling ear to ear, especially when we're working 80 hours a week in minimum wage, but that is the attitude he had. And I just came across this on social media this week. as a, a quote from one of the pastors I follow. He said this, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but God's. And so if you're not generous, it's because you have wrong thinking about whose money it ultimately is, whose stuff it ultimately is. And fourth and finally, this is the final thing I'll say about this passage, is that possessions are not at fault in this parable. This man is not condemned for receiving wealth, so it's not a statement against the wealthy in general, nor is there anything negative implied about the possessions themselves. This passage isn't judging possessions. It's not judging rich people. It is only the man's attitude toward his possessions and his response to good fortune that are being judged here. Hear that? It is his attitude towards his possessions. So it's not how many or how few or what type, but it's how tightly he clings to them that is in scope here. And it's his response to good fortune. What happens? Do you think of others or do you think of yourself when you encounter good fortune? Now, I want to apply this uh, in a couple different ways here. And I'm sure uh, if you've understood this parable, the applications are starting to flow into you already. It's just a matter of whether you want to do them or not. But here's a few. And the first one is this, that it highlights the idolatry of security. This passage is the idolatry of security. Because when he gets good fortune, he thinks, how can I secure everything for myself, for my future, and have a comfortable, easy, simple life? And so whether we're talking about a neighborhood that you buy a house in because of idolatry of security, you know, any type of product to secure yourself, uh, or whether you're talking about retirement or various uh, financial prospects that will serve you, that, you know, you're serving them as their, your master because you are a slave to security rather than following after Jesus who provides security. The second is this, the idolatry of pleasure. Extravagance in vacations, weddings, funerals, uh, runs rampant. In fact, one commentator said it this way, weddings and funerals in modern society both become pictures of fantasy and occasions for inordinate expense. Now, this is interesting because there's a statistic on this. Did you know that there is a straight line statistic on the amount of money spent on your engagement ring and the amount of money spent on your wedding and the divorce rate? The more money you spend on the wedding and on the ring, the more likely you are to be divorced. Now, that's a correlation. And if my wife were here, she's not, she's got a knee injury, but... uh she would tell me that, well, now correlation doesn't imply causation, which is true. But we might deduce from that that when you are so heavily invested in the wedding, you are scarcely invested in the marriage. And some of these elaborate weddings that cost six figures or more, what they indicate is that you have romanticized and you've, you think that this is a pleasure-seeking quest. And as much as the wedding might be a pleasure-seeking quest, anyone who is married can tell you it is not entirely a pleasure-based endeavor. 
And I noticed, now this is another correlation that's not a causation, the amount of laughter and the distance you're sitting from your spouse. If you're sitting really close to your spouse, you're not laughing very hard at that. But those who came by themselves today are free to enjoy that one. And finally, and finally this. There is a sweeping trend. There's two sweeping trends. And now we're not talking about American culture in general, right? It's easy to shoot arrows at that. I'm talking about American Christian culture. Here, there are two uh, equal and sweeping trends here. And one is what we refer to as the prosperity gospel. The notion that having enough faith, God will produce health and wealth for you. Which means... Health and wealth is the thing you're seeking, and God is the means by which you get there. And that values health and wealth above God himself, and it becomes an idol. And prosperity gospel teaches that we should amass as much material wealth and and be as healthy and wealthy and live long and prosper uh, all the days of our lives, which, uh, first of all, if you want to know what's wrong with the prosperity gospel in a nutshell, it doesn't apply to Jesus or any of the apostles. Start there. None of them were prospering. None of them had health and wealth. Uh, Only one of them died a natural death. So, if you have a theology, it should at least apply to Jesus. Just generally speaking. Now, okay, now we can, we're all laughing at the prosperity people because that's a mistake, right? We all can see the error in that. But there's an, there's an opposite response that I would call the poverty gospel, which says, oh, you know, you need to give away all of your things. There is a best-selling Christian author who in his very first book he ever published, which was a bestseller, was boasting about how he tithes 80% of his money. Now, first of all, tithe is a word from the King James translation. It just means tenth. So you can't tenth anything other than 10%. That just makes him bad at math. But... You see that tenth? So yeah. So if you're tenthing eighty percent, you're tenthing eight times. Um, but that, and that's generous. Now we don't discourage that level of giving, and it's a beautiful thing that he can be that generous. But when you when other Christians are made, you know, when you use that to shame or guilt other Christians for their giving habits, that becomes a gospel in and of itself. And the problem with both the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel is that both of them define you by your possessions. Whether you define yourself by lack of possessions or abundance of possessions, you are committing the same error. You are not defining yourself by Jesus, who is the only way that we can find uh, security and pleasure and true health and true wealth in this life. And so life, as Jesus says, does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And in the end, security and pleasure are not condemned, but obtaining them through wealth is condemned. So security and pleasure aren't bad, but security and pleasure are not to be obtained through wealth They can only truly be obtained by Jesus because the only thing that threatens our pleasure, that threatens our security is sin. And sin is only defeated by Jesus on the cross. And so ultimately, faith in Jesus is our only means to true security, 